If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We continue in our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last Sunday, we looked at one particular incident. And this, it followed after what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. Jesus and the three disciples with him, Peter, James, and John, come down and they find the rest of the disciples surrounded by a crowd and there's an argument going on between the disciples and the teachers of the law. As to what they were arguing about, we are not told directly, but we can infer by what follows. Um, This is what I think happened. A man brought his son who was demon-possessed to the disciples to cast out the demon, and they could not. Therefore, they might be seen as frauds or imposters, and that's what the argument is between them and the teachers of the law. They had been sent out by Jesus previously on mission to preach and to heal and to cast out demons, and they did so many times, we are told. But this time they could not. And what does Jesus say about this? Oh, unbelieving generation, oh, faithless generation. So who is he talking about? Who is faithless here? Well, I think the crowd, because they're there for a show. They want to see the disciples do this thing. And you'll notice that when Jesus casts out the demon, he does it before the crowd gets there. Okay, this is not for show. Secondly, the teachers of the law want a sign. And so if they can cast out the demon, maybe that's a sign. And the disciples are faithless. They are not able to cast out the demon thinking that they could do it on their own strength. At the conclusion of the incident, the disciples asked Jesus, because he's able to cast out the demon, the unclean spirit, why they couldn't do it. They had done it before, and why couldn't they do it now? And he replies, this kind can come only by prayer and fasting. And as I mentioned last week, fasting doesn't mean depriving yourself necessarily. It means that instead of the time you would spend eating, you spend that time in prayer. So Jesus is saying this kind can come only by prayer and praying. Rather than resting in God in prayer, the disciples thought they could do it on their own, and they were quite astonished when they could not. One of the fascinating things in the Gospels is that we read about Jesus praying. And he, in fact, is able to cast out this unclean spirit. Um, This kind comes only by prayer and praying. One last thing. The father of the boy comes to Jesus. If you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the father's boy exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And I think this is a wonderful statement about the nature of our believing. We cannot believe perfectly or completely. There is always that element of unbelief. Um, but that, that's okay. We live in a fallen world, in a broken world. We should not expect perfection in us, perfection in our faith. Um, what we should expect is that we would dep- be dependent upon God. The disciples had failed to recognize that they were completely dependent upon God. And the best way for you to be reminded that you are dependent upon God is in prayer. It is in prayer that we are reminded, 
I'm not independent. I'm not self-sufficient. I am dependent upon the Father. Today we're going to look at a series of short passages, not one incident, but a series of short uh, incidents. The first is found in verses 30 through 32. This is the second time that Jesus tells his disciples about his coming passion. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. Three times in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus talks to his disciples about his coming passion, his suffering and his death. The first we saw in chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. In the first the first case where Jesus speaks about his coming passion, he spoke about the necessity of it. It must happen, that the Son of Man must suffer many things. He must be killed. Here, in the second mention of his coming passion, he speaks of the certainty of his passion. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. This is going to happen. He will be betrayed and handed over. He doesn't talk about the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He simply says that he will be betrayed to the hands of men. And in both cases, he tells his disciples that he would be killed and that he would rise from the dead after three days. The biggest difference between the first and the second mention of his passion is the reaction of the disciples. In the first case... We saw Peter took him aside and rebuked him and said, this is never going to happen. In this case, the disciples don't say anything. They don't understand what he means, and they're afraid to ask him about it. I would say, as was the case with Peter in the first instance, what Jesus had just told his disciples didn't fit the story as they saw it the narrative of the Messiah, of the Messiah. Yeah, that's, from what we know of Scripture, that's, yeah, the Messiah is going to rule over the earth. This this is not die, be betrayed, suffer. Uh, No, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But I think there's also another reason why they don't challenge Jesus. In Mark chapter 4, we read, With many similar parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as much as they could understand. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. But when he was alone with his own disciples, he explained everything. And since that passage, by the way, we've seen this borne out, not only in what Jesus says, but in his actions, that he tells parables. But he says things, and the disciples don't get it. So he tells them, uh, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they're like, oh, it's because we forgot to bring bread. That's why he said that. They didn't realize what, in fact, he was saying. And then the parables of the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000. These literally happened. They're not just stories. But they also illustrated and demonstrated a profound truth. And the disciples failed to get that. 
So now when Jesus says that the Son of Man is going to be betrayed, it's like, ooh, is this one of those parable things? Is this, is this a metaphor for something? Uh, they didn't see it as something that would be literally true. The Son of Man, who is this? Well, in chapter 2, twice, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. When he healed the paralytic, um, he said, your son, your sins are forgiven. And people are like, who has the right to do that? And he says, so that you will know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And then at the end of the chapter, the disciples are going through grain fields on the Sabbath and they pluck grain, uh, the heads of grain, and they're eating and popping them in their mouth. And the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, like they're breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus says that the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This title, Son of Man, is something we find in Daniel chapter 7 in one of his visions. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, what does he preach? The kingdom of God is near. So people are putting together, well, in Daniel it says about this son of man and his kingdom, it's, a, it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. He's going to be king over all the earth. Um, so that's what they saw in the son of man. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, the son of man must be killed. He will be betrayed and they're like, yeah, that, that doesn't fit. You're putting a piece in the puzzle that doesn't fit into that particular space. It didn't fit into what they thought of the Son of Man. But they were afraid to ask him. And again, I think they may have thought it was a parable, but they're not sure what he's saying. And the fact that they didn't understand is now made clear in the next passage we will look at. Verses 33 to 37. This is the issue of who, will be, who is the greatest. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet on the way, because on the way, they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Taking a little child and had him stand among them, taking, he took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. It's a fascinating passage, and I think one that is easily misunderstood. Because you might ask, Damon, what do the first three verses have to do with the last two verses? It, it seems that there's been a shift, a, a change in subject matter. This is a wonderful passage for you to study because it illustrates that you need to know what is the context of a given passage. There are many cults in the world today that use the Bible as supposedly the basis of their religious beliefs, 
But what they do is they take verses here and there, and then they sort of cobble them together. That's not the way the Bible was written. We need to see what is being said in the context, the context that surrounds it. So, the first three verses here, the context is Jesus spoke to them of his coming passion, that he would be betrayed, killed, and rise from the dead. Disciples don't get this. They're afraid to ask about it. Okay? Again, what's going on? The story Jesus was telling them of the Son of Man was not the story that they had heard. It wasn't the story that they wanted. For them, the Messiah is going to come in and he is going to rule over all the earth, all men, all nations, all languages. He will be the king overall. And uh, one could go back all the way to the original promise made to Abram before he became Abraham. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then in Isaiah 60, there are many passages among the prophets, but I picked this particular one. The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So as the disciples see it, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one. He is the descendant of David. He is the one who's going to sit on David's throne and rule the nations. And since they are his disciples, when he comes to power, they will be his court officials. Now, I'm not sure that that's why they decide to be his disciples, but there's, there's that aspect in it that when Jesus is king, then we will be governors or some position in the court. But if you have 12 men, they can't all be equal in power. So some are going to have more power than others, more prestige than others. And this is what they're arguing about. No, I'm, I'm going to have a better job than you. I'm going to be higher in the kingdom than you. Which means that they completely did not understand what Jesus had just said about the Son of Man. They did not understand who Jesus was, what his mission was, and what the kingdom of heaven was. So, How does Jesus solve this problem, if you wish? How does he teach them in this matter? He tells them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and servant of all. This is a fundamental truth, a fundamental reality. And it reaches all the way back to the nature of the Trinity, of the triune God. We've seen that love is giving and receiving. But in a sinful world, It is taking and keeping. This is mine. I'm going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And if you understand the kingdom of heaven, then no, it's about giving and receiving and serving others. So you want to be in the kingdom? Then you have to serve. Okay? It's not about taking and keeping and saying, I will be the first. I'm the greatest, and then the rest of you guys can be behind me, but I'm going to be the one next to the king, next to Jesus, and we're going to rule the world. Well, if you're thinking in terms of Jesus being king and you being a court official, then what Jesus says about him dying really 
really messes up that story and it's not something that you want. One writer said, a narcissistic sense that the gospel exists to make me feel good does not allow for a suffering savior or Messiah. So how does Jesus shake them out of this? He told them, if you're going to be first, you're going to be the last. Okay. You need to be a servant. That's what it means to be a disciple in my kingdom. But then he does something that we don't expect. And we don't expect it because we think in a different, in a different way. He brings a child in the midst of them. They're in the house in Capernaum where Jesus had been living. They've returned home. And he puts a child in the midst of them. And he says, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. Again, the context is critical to understand to what Jesus is saying here. Otherwise, we might have a very sentimental view. Um, there's no question that Jesus loved children. And we will see that in, in a minute. But also, uh, Lord willing, next Sunday, that Jesus loves children. Thus far in the Gospel of Mark, he has raised the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He has cast out the demon from the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. And as we saw last week, he cast out the demon of this man's son. And if we're not careful, again, we will think, oh, um, children are nice. Children are sweet. They are innocent. Um, and that's what Jesus means. That's not what he means at all. By the way, in the passage in chapter 10, People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but his disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. Um, there's a tenderness to them. And, and here in this passage, um, in verse number 36, taking him in his arms, he said to them, so Jesus does love children, but it's not a sentimental thing. It's not like, oh, I wish you all could be like children because they believe easily, they're innocent, uh, they're easily awed, they, they seem to recognize the wonder of creation, and when you get older, you sort of lose that. No, no, that's, that's not what's going on. Why bring a child into the picture? What's being said here? There are two things. First of all, generally speaking, a child is someone who is in need of help. Parents are there, neighbors, adults are there to give shelter, to give instruction, to give protection, whatever is needed. So to welcome one of these little children is to be a servant to that child. You're serving a child because the child needs help. I mentioned a quote, a quote several weeks ago regarding honoring one's parents, but I think it fits here as well. By noting that we are creatures, creature, uh, creations of mothers and fathers, the Decalogue tells us that we have life as a gift. We are begotten, not manufactured. Someone even changed our diapers our first hint of what grace must be like. To serve a child is in fact a demonstration of grace. 
the disciples are to be servants, not I'm going to be the best, I'm going to be the greatest, I'm going to be number one, the rest of you can you know, line up behind me. No, you are to serve. Secondly, in the ancient world, but to a certain degree today, um, a child had no status or standing in society. In our society, we would say that a child to a particular age is a minor, okay? So they don't have legal standing as an adult does. I don't know if you remember what Paul wrote in Galatians 4. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. That is, as long as a child is a minor, I mean, his dad may have died, his parents may have died, and willed the whole estate to him. He owns everything. But until he reaches majority, until he becomes an adult, he's like a slave. So when Jesus says, you know, serve a child, you're serving a minor, someone who has no legal standing. A child is the best way for us to see how we are to view ourselves. The disciples are not going to gain any particular favor because they are his disciples. But when you think about it, hasn't this been the, church, the problem of the church throughout church history? People sort of climbing over each other, wanting to be on top? Forgetting what Jesus said, that we need to be like children. We need to serve children, that is, like minors, not someone who has any status. People in the church have thought in terms of status. They think that what they do or what position they hold makes them special. Instead of recognizing the place of grace. Grace that serves all. Because it recognizes them as children, as minors, and in need of help. Just as in serving Jesus, welcoming Jesus, we are in fact welcoming the one who sent him. And we see this in the next incident. If you look at verse number 38. Teacher, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we told him to stop because he is not one of us. Do not stop him, Jesus said. No one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not, whoever is not against us is for us. I tell you the truth. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. Like, what's going on here? This is, isn't this somewhat bizarre? I mean, we have Jesus and the 12 disciples and suddenly there's some guy over here casting out demons. We don't even know his name. Apparently no affiliation with Jesus and his group, but he's casting out demons in Jesus' name. I would say that John seems to have a point here. Isn't he trying to protect Jesus and his reputation and his ministry? After all, when John the Baptist came, he was announcing that the, there was one coming who is greater than him. After me will come one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is that person. And now, again, there's some guy over here doing something in Jesus' name. And John and the other disciples said, cut it out. You're not one of us. 
you have no right to do these things. Jesus chose 12 men to be his disciples. He had sent them out on mission to preach, to heal, to cast out unclean spirits. And whoever this person is, he's not one of them. What we find is that John has a very exclusive view. Jesus is the Messiah, where his followers, when he becomes the king of the whole earth, we're going to be his court officials. What's that guy over there doing? He has no business doing that. His view, John's view, was very exclusive, while Jesus was inclusive. John saw Jesus' work as private and privileged. It's for us, the chosen ones, the disciples. And Jesus, in fact, saw his work as headed towards something. The Son of Man must be killed. He will be betrayed. That's where the story's going. John and the other disciples, their story's going way off into the heavens. They're like, we're going we're gonna to be so powerful. We are going to rule with Jesus. Two things stand out in this passage for me. The first is, in verse 40, whoever's not against us is for us. I have to say, though, that this is a bit troubling because there are many, even today, who use the name of Jesus, who claim to be followers of Jesus, when in reality they are not. What are we to make of that? Well, the second thing I think will help us a bit, it's in verse number 41. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to Christ will certainly not lose his reward. There's nothing here about casting out demons, nothing here about miraculous, nothing here about power or wealth or prestige. It's about a cup of water. It's like, I mean, if you're in the desert and thirsty, a cup of water could mean everything, but generally speaking, a cup of water, I mean, doesn't seem like a big deal. But remember that love is giving and receiving, not taking and keeping. And Jesus wants the disciples to be willing to give, to serve, to recognize their status as minors, as children, and to serve children, to serve all. And you know what this guy over here, if he gives you a cup of water in my name, he will have a reward. It's not about, ooh, I did more miracles than he did. I cast out more demons than he did. No. Giving and receiving. And the receiving is just a cup of water. But it flows into the next passage, verse number 42. And if anyone causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. In light of what we've just seen, who are the little ones? one might be inclined to think this refers to children. I don't think so. I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about. If we are to have the status of minors in the kingdom of heaven, okay, if we believe in him, then we are one of the little ones. I don't know that we like that. We don't want to be known as little ones. We want to be known as adults as mature, as those who know something, who have certain standing. But Jesus says, no, no, little ones. If you cause one of these little ones to sin, 
the warning is about causing someone to sin. And two things come to mind for me. And the first is quite frightening. The case can be made that each one of us, whether we would admit it or not, have caused other people to sin. Think about that for a minute. Perhaps we have done something we should not have done and people saw us do it and they're like, well, he did it, so it must be okay. In that sense, we have caused them to sin. On the other hand, perhaps we've done something we shouldn't, we've said something we shouldn't, and it's caused the other person to respond in anger. They've lost their temper and we've caused them to sin. The list could go on and on and on. None of us today can say, well, I've never, ever caused anyone to sin. We have. But I don't think that's what Jesus is speaking about specifically here. Because what's the context? John and the disciples saw somebody else doing something in Jesus' name. And they're like, cut it out. You don't belong to him. You're not part of the group. We're not told what happened to that individual. But did he lose his faith? Did he walk away from Jesus? Did he say, I guess Jesus isn't the Messiah because his disciples are a bunch of jerks? Um, I think this is what it's about. That this person who's referred to as a little one was caused to sin because of the disciples' insistence on being more important than everyone else. And Jesus says, um, you know, don't, it would be better for you to die and, and not a pleasant death to, be, to have a millstone tied around your neck and then thrown into the sea. The millstone, back in the ancient world, and some places still do it, you have the foundation stone, and then you have a stone on top of it with a hole in the center, and it is a big thing. It's not something you do by hand, and an animal will take it, you know, go around in a circle. You put the grain inside, and it's crushed, and the husk comes off, and then you're left with the grain itself. It's something would weigh hundreds of pounds. And Jesus says, listen, um, it'd be better for you to have something like that tied around your neck and thrown in the sea. In other words, you're going to die. There's no possibility of escape than for you to cause someone to sin. To cause someone to sin is a serious matter. Including causing yourself to sin. These are the last verses of this chapter, verses 43 to 50. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell, where the fire never goes out, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. I think the first thing that comes to mind is like, I've heard this before somewhere. 
And indeed, we hear very similar words in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And then in verse 29, this is Matthew 5, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. The context is different. This is not the Sermon on the Mount here. But again, Jesus was a traveling teacher. So we would assume that he repeated things in different places. And here he speaks uh, similar words. The message is the same. Okay, This is the message. Sin cannot be indulged. Sin cannot be indulged. It must be put to death. I think most people agree that Jesus is not speaking literally. Okay? He's not saying that you should cut off your hand or your foot or gouge out your eye. Um, if, if that, in fact, were the case, most of us would look like a character from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. You know, just parts of our body simply being taken off bit by bit. Um, what he is saying is that sin is so terrible, it must be dealt with immediately, it must be dealt with decisively and radically. It can't be pampered, it can't be indulged. It's like, yeah, it's just a small thing. It's my thing, it's my weakness. Halfway measures will not do the job. And so the vision is that of surgery, amputation, cut it off, pluck it out. There is a war that is going on for you. There's a war going on. And by God's grace, if you are going to survive this war, you must do what is right and avoid what is wrong. And what does that mean? You'll notice that in, in the NIV, verses 44 and 46 are not included. But they have the same words as verse number 48. Uh, I wish they hadn't done this, because the force of what Jesus is saying is diminished. But what Jesus sees is that sin is eternally damaging. It is eternally damaging. Hell is described as where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. By the way, Jesus didn't make this up. This comes from Isaiah chapter 66, the last chapter of Isaiah, the last verse of that chapter. Jesus is quoting the book of Isaiah here. And what he's talking about is eternal destruction. Okay? Externally, the fire is not quenched. Hell is described as a place of eternal fire. But also internally, their worm does not die. The person will remain conscious and alive for eternity in the fire. Now, if you stop and think about it, if in fact that's true, okay, if hell is real, and there is something in you that is causing you to sin, you have a choice. 
I can either deal with that now or just ignore it, indulge it, and then spend eternity in hell. In the same way that we are not to cause one of the little ones to sin, we are not to allow our, our being to cause us to sin. We must deal with it radically. And then, and it's connected, but perhaps we have a difficulty seeing why. Um, we have a trilogy of sayings about salt. Uh, verses uh, 49 um, and 50. Um, everyone will be salted with fire. And the King James has here, and again the NIV has left it out, and every sacrifice shall be salted with salt. The picture here is if you are a disciple of Jesus, your life is one of sacrifice. Sacrifice, Old Testament concept, go back to the, the book of Leviticus. Every sacrifice had to include salt. You can't just simply give your sacrifice. It's like, where's the salt? Salt had to be given. And in the ancient world, and in many cultures even today, salt was a very precious, very rare. And so to sacrifice oneself doesn't mean, okay, I give myself over to Jesus. Okay? There is a sense of something of great value is to be put there as well. Paul tells us that we are, in fact, to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. So to be a disciple of Jesus means sacrifice. Secondly, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? If being a disciple of Jesus requires sacrifice and you lose that saltiness, then what is left? I mean, how, how can you be salty again? I think the warning really brings to mind the idea of the Pharisees. They knew the scriptures, but they had set them aside for the traditions of the elders. And so there was no place in their story for the Messiah to come and suffer and be put to death. Just as with the disciples. They just couldn't get their minds around this. And Jesus warned the Pharisees, he warned his disciples time and time again. If you are my disciples, it is a sacrificial act. And in fact, if you lose what it means to be a disciple, that saltiness, how do you get it back? The third thing is have salt in yourselves and be at peace with each other. Any salt that one has as a disciple is a gift. It is grace from God, and it is to be received as such. You can't create yourself as like, I'm going to make myself salt. I'm going to make myself salty. This is something which God does by his spirit. He makes us his own disciples. But by God's grace, we can make sure, we can be careful that we don't lose that saltiness. That somehow sin has been pampered, indulged, and the saltiness of us has slowly been diluted and has left us. If we in fact have salt or saltiness, it is seen in this that we are at peace with one another. Okay, we've looked at these five different passages. What do we take away from this today? To be a disciple of Jesus is difficult and it demands sacrifice. 
That's not what people want to hear. What people want to hear today is that if you follow Jesus, if you become a disciple of Jesus, then in fact you will find personal fulfillment. You'll have a sense of satisfaction. Um, Yeah. You'll be self-actualized. You'll, yes, I will be who I am meant to be. Or some people think if you become a disciple of Jesus, then you're following a path of personal spirituality and it will meet whatever needs you think you have, any felt needs that you have. I, I get a sense that this is what we find in the disciples as well. The disciples think, if, since they're with Jesus, when he becomes king, they're going to have high positions in the hierarchy. They're going to be right up there near the top. In chapter 8, Jesus says, if anyone would follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Yeah, that's not, that's not what we want to hear. We don't want to hear that the first will be the very last. And to be honest, we're not always keen on the idea of serving others. And if people serve us, they give us a cup of water. Like, gee, thanks. That's, that's it? That's what you're going to give me? Like the disciples, we have such a distorted view of what it means to be a child of God and to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. As we saw in chapter 8, to deny yourself has been really misunderstood. It doesn't mean that oh, everything I want to do, my goals, my ambitions, my dreams, I have to get rid of them to follow Jesus. No. I think what it means is what your story is, the story you imagine of, oh, this is what it's like to be a Christian. In the way that it differs from what Jesus says, then it's got to go. You have to get rid of it. You must deny the false narrative and embrace that which Jesus taught us. Take up the cross. For us, this is so familiar that we've lost any real sense of what this means. The Romans used the cross as a method of execution. The Romans were the hated occupiers of Palestine. The Romans were the enemy. And Jesus says, oh, by the way, take up your cross. Romans would make the the condemned person carry his or her cross to the place of execution. And there they would be crucified. And then Jesus saying, take up your cross. Um, Jesus says that we must, by his grace, be willing to do willingly, voluntarily, what the Romans forced people to do. You're condemned. Get your cross and take it over here. We're going to crucify you. And Jesus is not saying we're going to be crucified. He says we need to be willing. We need to voluntarily take up that, which might not be very pleasant. An instrument of death. It might, in fact, mean persecution. It might mean being shamed by others being a disciple is not easy Jesus says follow me
one of the difficult things that I face in, in preparing this and presenting it to you is that I don't want to give a sense that, oh, thanks, Damon. When I get home, I'm going to do this. I'm going to deny myself. I'm going to take up my cross. I'm going to follow Jesus. As though this is something we could do on our own and in our own strength. That's what the disciples messed up with casting out the demon out of the boy. They thought they could do it in their own strength. No. It is the grace of God that works in our lives. And the quote that we had before communion today, grace is primary. It all starts with grace. And God does his work in us. And as we submit ourselves to him and are willing to take on the status of minors, not someone who has legal rights, someone who has legal status, someone who has prestige. Um, Yeah. Can't do it on our own. Never could. But in the same way that a child oftentimes think that they are independent, that they make it on their own, it's only later that they realize, oh no, my parents were the ones taking care of me. Um, It is God who works in us. And the issue is not status or prestige or being number one. The issue is love. Giving and receiving. Serving and, if necessary, being served with a cup of water. That's what it means to be a disciple in the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Father, we freely admit that we're no better than those 12 disciples. We get things so wrong. Caught up as much of our culture is with prestige and position and status. The idea that somehow being your follower takes away any status or position is uncomfortable. Ever since Jesus has been here, your people have been scrambling for position. Forgetting that our call is to serve. To recognize who we are as your people. Recipients of grace and totally dependent upon you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But in our foolishness, we imagine that we can. And perhaps we might even think, uh, take this message and we're like, I can, I can do that. I will deny myself. I will take up my cross. I will follow Jesus. Not recognizing that it is only by your grace that we can do any of that. In a world that takes and keeps or seeks to, may we be those who give and receive and give and receive.
Father, help us by your spirit to work these things out in our lives, and our minds. May we meditate on them. And as James said, not be hearers only, but doers of the word. Be those who are willing to serve. Be those who do not seek any status. Those who rest in you and complete dependence. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. It's the beginning of a new week. May we have a sense of your presence with us every moment of the day. We pray, we pray for Tom and Anne uh, as they'll be traveling this Friday that you would give them safety. For each one of us and all that we do this week, may you be lifted up. We are your children by your grace. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.